Let's turn again to the book of Revelation, chapter 3, verses 7 and following. And this morning we're going to talk about the sixth and the next to the last of the seven churches, the uh, church in the city of Philadelphia. You probably have already heard of their uh, football team and uh, baseball team, but uh, this is not uh, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, but Philadelphia, city of Philadelphia and Asia Minor. And this is the sixth of these letters which the Lord addresses to uh, these churches in Asia. The uh, pattern of this church, follow, of this letter, follows those of uh, the other letters. He begins with an introductory word to the messenger of the church in Philadelphia, and then something of the description of the one who writes. He uh, deviates from the pattern a bit here because in the past he goes back to chapter 1, to the vision of the risen Christ and draws some uh, picture, some analogy, some reference from uh, chapter 1. But in this case, he goes all the way back to the Old Testament and describes himself as one who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens. That's what the Lord Jesus is. He is holy and he's truthful. Whenever we think of uh, holiness, we think of someone with a long face and a dour expression on it, uh, whose picture would make a good frontispiece for the book of uh, Lamentations. But uh, that's not what holiness means. All you have to do is look at the life of, of our Lord and the way he related to people to understand what it means to be holy. He was uh, approachable and, and warm, sensitive and tender, Always had time for people. He was never in a hurry, never pushed or rushed. Had time to stop and talk to people in need. And uh, yet he was uh, wholly unlike everyone else around him in his, in his morality. His character was different. That's what Scripture means by holiness. This particular reference is used repeatedly, repeatedly in the Old Testament. For God the Father, he's called the Holy One. And here that title is given to the Lord. He's holy, and he's true. In other words, you can count on what he says. He's reliable. He always tells you the truth. Paul says that's not true of men in Romans 3. He says, God is true, and every man is a liar. <laughs> it's just that stark. And God always tells the truth, but uh, we by nature are liars. We deceive one another by our words and, and through our actions. We used to say you can't trust anyone under over 30, and then when you get to be 30, you come to the conclusion you can't trust anyone under 30, and uh, you, you wonder who you can trust. But uh, here's one who's trustworthy, always tells us the truth. What, what we read in this revelation is true. doesn't always seem that it is. It runs contrary to so much of secular thinking and secular society, and uh, we grow up thinking that... Uh, What's, what we see around us, what we hear from the world is true, but uh, so much of it is false or half-truth. But, but Jesus always tells us the truth. My father used to tell me of a young voice student who came to see his uh, voice teacher one morning, and as he walked in the room, he said, What's the good news today? And uh, the teacher walked over to the piano and struck a tuning fork, and he said, That's A. The uh, soprano upstairs sharps on her high notes, and the baritone downstairs flats on his low notes, but that's A, and that's the good news for today. And that's uh, what we learn from the Lord. There is a constant there. 
We can always go back to the Word and, and believe Him, regardless of, of what's happening around us. And then He's described not only in terms of who He is, but uh, what He has and what He does. Jesus says He has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens. Now, I'd be willing to bet that hardly any of you know what the key of David is, and uh, I didn't know either until I started uh, looking around. In, uh, in the prophecy of Isaiah in chapter 21, there is reference made there to a, a man by the name of Sheba, a Shebna, S-H-E-B-N-A, Shebna. He was the steward of Hezekiah, who was an 8th century uh, king, Judean king. And this fellow Shebna was his steward. He was responsible for taking care of the house, somewhat like a butler. And Isaiah predicts in Isaiah 21 that Shebna would be brought down because of his, his pride, and he would be replaced by Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who also became the steward. And then Isaiah says, I will place in his hands the key of David, and what he opens uh, no one can shut, and what he shuts no one can open. Now, it's this passage that Jesus has in mind. He's referring to a, this Old Testament illustration. And the point is, Eliakim had the run of the house. He could come and go. He could open doors and he closed doors. He had the lock that gave him access to every part of the, of the temple complex. And if he wanted to lock people out, he could. And if he wanted to open the door to them, he could. And what the Lord is saying here is that, that he's irrepressible. He's never frustrated. When the doors to China closed, that didn't frustrate him. He can open the door to nations when he wants to, or he can close the doors to nations. He's sovereign in that regard. He's the God of opportunity who opens and closes. And we'll see in a moment the significance of, of this description. In verse 8, he commends this church. He says, I know your deeds. That's uh, just a general word of commendation. Behold, I have put before you an open door, which no one can shut, because you have little power and yet have kept my word and I have not denied my name. Now, I changed a couple of words, omitted the uh, particle A and included the word yet after and because I think it gives us a little better sense. It helps us to see what Jesus is driving at. He says, I've opened a door to you because though you are small and insignificant, yet you have kept my word. Now, we don't know much about this church, but apparently it was small, perhaps small numerically or or socially. It may have been somewhat like the church in Corinth, of which Jesus said, not many wise, not many mighty, not many noble are called. Didn't include many upper class or highly educated or sophisticated people. Many of these churches were, uh, were filled with, with slaves or ex-slaves, and perhaps this was the, uh, the situation in, in Philadelphia. So this was a small group, not, uh, not seemingly significant. They didn't know how they could have much of an impact on this vast metropolis, which was Philadelphia. Philadelphia was the cultural center of Asia Minor. It's where the theaters were, Colosseum. Uh, they, they were, as a matter of fact, given to uh, athletics in a, in a big way. And uh, universities there. Um, it seemed a city that was held tightly in the grip of uh, Roman imperial government. They controlled the schools. They controlled the law courts. And uh, the idea would, would repeatedly come to mind, what can a small, insignificant group like this do? But Jesus says, you have endured. You've kept the faith right where you are. 
and therefore I'm going to open a door of opportunity to you. Now, uh, Philadelphia was right on the edge of the civilized world, and everything to the east was considered pagan by the Romans, and it may well be that the Lord is saying you have an opportunity to reach into these vast, unchurched, unreached uh, areas of the world off to the east in Asia. Or it may be that the Lord is saying you have an opportunity to, to reach out in the city right, right where you are. But in either case, it's an, a door of opportunity that the Lord opens up that no one can shut. And therefore, they needed to take advantage of this opportunity. Now, I don't know about you, but I sometimes get uh, intimidated by the world around us. It seems that all the power and the money and the, and the scholarship and, and the big influence is in, in secular society. And uh, I read articles uh, such as the one in Time magazine yesterday. I don't know how many of you saw uh, last Friday edition that came out Friday, uh, based on the Seagraves trial in California. And uh, it contained a discussion of the current uh, thinking about evolution and creationism. And uh, though it was a well-written article, if you read it, the, the impression that you get is that uh, evangelical scholarship, particularly in the field of biology, is just overlooked. It's insignificant. And uh, they made statements uh, such as these, that really all uh, they call them fundamentalist scholars have done is take all the research that uh, evolutionists have done and picked and they've picked and chosen and out of this research they have come to certain conclusions but they don't do any original research. Well, that's not true. And uh, the tendency is to read something like this and just be completely intimidated or to sit in a classroom where everyone in the classroom is non-Christian and feel inhibited and, and suppressed. I can think back uh, to my, my years at Cal sitting in a classroom where I was the only Christian and here were all these bright young men and women who, never, who read everything and never forgot anything, and they, they were really uh, sharp, bright, and here I sit, and uh, you, you feel so intimidated and suppressed by the whole thing. But the Lord says, don't be. This is an opportunity. I've opened a door. Don't be afraid. Go for broke. What uh, ought to characterize us at a time like this is, a, is an audacious faith. We need to believe God and start reaching out to the areas of need around us. I had a, a professor in seminary whose father used to live on the Susquehanna River. And uh, when he was a boy, he, uh, one morning, one winter morning, helped his father uh, load up the wagons to take them into town. And, and for the first time, he was able to drive one of the wagons. And they made their way down to the river in these heavy-laden uh, wagons with, with a team of horses. And uh, the boy who was uh, making his way down the hill uh, became frightened when he came to the river, and so he got off of the wagon, he got down his hands and knees, and he started feeling his way across the ice to be sure that it wouldn't crack. And he was uh, out about 15 or 20 feet in the ice when he heard this rattling behind him, and he stood up and looked, and here came his father down the hill, and he was lashing the team, and he just raced right across the river and up the other side. And there he was on his hands and knees feeling the ice, you see. And it's that kind of audacious faith that uh, the Lord wants us to have. Now, I don't know, that may have been folly, because who knows how thick the ice was, but, uh, but we have a Lord who tells us the truth, you see. And when he says, there's a door open to you all around, look at the needs. Seize the opportunities. You've been uh, faithful in uh, what you have. Now, uh, redeem the time, because the days are evil. Start reaching out. 
You know, I, I suspect that all of us fail to do so out of fear. Um, we just uh, don't feel adequate for that sort of task. But the Lord tells us we don't need to be afraid. We can proclaim the gospel wherever we want to. Now, that's what this passage means. I have opened the door, and no one, no one can close it. And what I shut, no one opens. So we really do have the authority to preach Christ wherever we wish. Now, there are, of course, times when we should not. We should not use our employer's time to uh, share Christ with, with our fellow workers. That's improper. That's uh, stealing time from him. Uh, there might be other times when it's totally appropriate, but the point is we don't ever need to be afraid given the right sort of situation. There are also ways uh, in which it would be wrong to share the gospel. We should never be argumentative and hostile and hard and harsh. We ought always to be sensitive and kind and thoughtful, never brash, never obtrusive. Um, as Paul puts it in Second Timothy, the servant of God must not be argumentative, but uh, patient with all men, gracious in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves. So whenever we seize these opportunities, we need to do so with a real sense of sensitivity toward the people that that we're, uh, we're talking to. We have no right to trample all over them or to intrude in an ungracious way. But we should not be afraid. That's the point. In our office, uh, in the, uh, the service club, of which we're a member down here at the courthouse, I run into about half of you sooner or later down there every week, and uh, that's a great opportunity to, to begin to, to proclaim the gospel in our neighborhoods, in our schools, wherever we go. When I, uh, when I first came here, I shared a story, and I don't think I've told it for three years, so um, forgive me. But uh, to me, it's, uh, it's my story, and uh, therefore, it's, uh, I like it. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm, I'm really very timid, and it's very difficult for me to uh, initiate a conversation about Christ. That's the big barrier. But um, I have a friend down in Laguna, Bay, uh, Laguna Beach whose homes, home we used, to, uh, we used to visit. As a matter of fact, we used to swap homes. He would come up to the San Francisco Bay Area and stay in our home, and he and his family. And we would go down to Laguna Beach for a few days. But uh, we always spent a little bit of time with each other when our paths crossed. And uh, one day he was up visiting us, and uh, he was telling me about all the people he had led to Christ the year before. This man was just incredible. Every time we got together, he would tell me about someone that uh, he had shared the gospel with, and they responded. I always thought he had some kind of spiritual radar. He could just spot them. And he was sitting in our living room reading a newspaper, and I said, Mike, how do you know when someone is ready to receive the gospel? He said, it's easy. I ask them. <laughs> I thought, all right. The next person I meet, I'll ask. And uh, the next morning, I went off to work and uh, didn't see anyone that day except my friends. And as I started home, I was driving down Middlefield Road, almost to the freeway, and a young man stepped off of the uh, curb. He had a big, long beard. And it was back in the days when no one wore beards. And the Lord said, that's the man? And I said, no, uh-uh. 
But uh, I stopped, and he got in the car, and we began to chat. And he was a uh, University of California student, Berkeley student in philosophy. We chatted for a while until we got to the freeway. And uh, he said, I have to go south. And I said, well, I'm going north. And I pulled off the side of the freeway, and I still hadn't said anything. And as he got out of the car, I said, excuse me a minute. You're going to think I'm a little strange, but I have to ask you a question. Are you interested in spiritual things? He got back into the car, turned and faced me, looked right at me, and he said, friend, I've been looking for God all my life. Can you tell me how to know God? Now, it sounds like I made it up, but I really didn't. You can ask Carolyn. It really happened. <clears throat> and what I've learned from that, as subsequent uh, contacts have proven to me, is that there are people all over the place whose hearts are really open, and we, we miss opportunities to make proclamation of the gospel primarily because we're afraid. We, uh, we excuse it. You know, I'm not particularly articulate. I'll let the, those who have the gift of evangelism do that, or my gift is uh, something else. Or when I get my life together, then I'll, then I'll share Christ. But really what it comes down to is that we're just full of terror. We're afraid. But, uh, we, and we can't help that. We simply need to take God at his word. He tells us the truth. There are doors of opportunity everywhere. One of the great concerns that I have right now is that there is absolutely no Christian witness to the high school crowd at large here in, uh, in Boise. There are probably 5,000 high school students. And there are some churches that are reaching out to these young men and women. But there is no concentrated effort to reach the high school community in Boise. Young life no longer exists here. Now, here's a field. And we need to do something about it. Here's a door that God has opened to us. We need to pray that God will give us the personnel and the people who can begin to move with vision and, and in faith and touch this needy area of our city. The list is endless. There's the legislature. There are your business associates. There's the neighborhood. And there's nothing to stop us. You see, that's the whole point. We have the authority to go where we please and preach the gospel. Always graciously. But we can have that sort of boldness. Now, having given that charge to the church, and the Lord gives a series of promises, beginning with verse 9. Behold, he says, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them to come and bow down at your feet and to know that I have loved you. The first promise is one of vindication. There were a group of people in the city of Philadelphia here who are described as the synagogue of Satan. These were, were Jews. Uh, ethnic Jews, people who trace their, their lineage back to Abraham. It seems in this city, as in Smyrna, they were responsible for stirring up the Roman Empire to persecute Christians there. Now, it was not always the Jews. And I am not an anti-Semite. I love the Jewish people. But in this case, they apparently were behind the efforts on the part of the Roman Empire to pursue and persecute uh, the church. At other times, it was Gentiles who were responsible. But in this case, it was Jews, whom Jesus says were really not Jews at all. Because according to Paul's teaching in Galatians, the only true Jews today are those who trace their lineage to Jesus Christ, not those who trace their line back to Abraham. Paul says that Jesus is the seed of Abraham 
and we are in him. So therefore, all of God's people, all those who acknowledge Jesus as Messiah, as the Christ, are Jews. That's why Galatians refers to the, uh, the church as the Israel of God. Now again, this is not to attack the Jews as a people, because I believe God yet has a purpose for the Jewish nation. He will establish his kingdom here on earth through the Jews. But at this point, these Jews had turned their backs on the Messiah, and they had aligned themselves with the enemies of the gospel. And that's why they're called the synagogue of Satan. Unwittingly, they had done this, but nevertheless, they had opposed God's plan to bring salvation to, uh, to the earth. The word Satan simply means adversary or enemy, and they had aligned themselves with the adversaries of, of the gospel. And Jesus says that these Jews will come and bow down at their feet and know that I have loved you. In other words, they will come to see that the church is the object of God's love. Not at this point in history, the nation of Israel, but the people of God that comprise the church, you see. Now, it may be that he's speaking eschatologically. That is, he's thinking about the future when, when the Lord comes back, and then there is vindication. Or he may be saying that there will be many from the nation of Israel itself who will come and bow down in the sense that they will acknowledge Jesus as Lord. But in any case, the point is, there will be vindication. Now, that's, that doesn't strike us as it would strike them, because we're not uh, looking for vindication so much. We haven't been persecuted and stretched and stressed the way these Christians had. If we had been, we would see the need for justice. The point is that all in all, we do live in a very just system, that sooner or later, God is going to set things right. And this is the promise. There will be vindication. Secondly, he says, there will be protection or preservation because he says, you have kept the word of my perseverance, that is, my word that teaches you to endure. I also will keep you from the hour of testing that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell upon the earth. Now, you would think at first reading that what Jesus is saying is, if you endure, then I will, uh, I will preserve. I will take, I'll preserve your faith. I will enable you to persevere to the end. Thus, it all depends upon us. But uh, that's not what he's saying at all. The emphasis in Revelation over and over again is on the perseverance of the saints. And the point of view that this book takes is that those who are truly regenerated, those who have really been born again, will endure to the end. And the doctrine of security is not that we can pray a simple prayer and then live any way we like and we'll be saved in the end. That simply is not the gospel. We have to believe into Christ. In other words, we have to acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord. That's what saves us. Now, we may not understand all the implications of lordship, but we do have to acknowledge him as Lord. And when we do, then we are regenerated. Our hearts are changed. We're given a new birth. And then, because of the change in our character, we will endure to the end. The doctrine of security, accurately stated, is that those who are regenerated will endure to the end. The basis of our security is not that once upon a time we prayed a prayer and asked Christ into our life. It's that the fruit of regeneration is showing up in our life. That's the argument that, uh, that John makes in his little epistle in 1 John. He says, uh, do you want to know if you're saved? Well, I'll tell you how. First of all, you have to give evidence that you believe the truth. 
And secondly, that the truth is real in your life. There has to be some measure of righteousness. And third, some measure of love. If there is truth, light, and uh, righteousness, and love, then that's the evidence that you truly belong to me. Now, that doesn't mean that we'll always do it perfectly. We will fail. We'll fail miserably. But the question is, what is the inclination of our heart? What is it that we really want? The real sign of the new birth is that our hearts are changed, that we really want God's will, though we at times choose otherwise. And uh, the point that Jesus is making here is that those who have made Christ Lord will endure to the end, and he will keep them through anything. You notice what he says in verse 10? I will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell upon the earth. Now, that's what we call the Great Tribulation. That's uh, this terrible time of trouble that is described uh, throughout the rest of the book of, of Revelation. Now, there are two ways to understand this statement. He can either be saying, I will take you out of the hour of testing. In other words, you won't even experience it. You will be raptured out, and there are many scholarly and, and godly Christians who believe that this is indeed what will happen. The church will be rescued. Or it can also mean you will be kept through this time of testing. In other words, your faith will be preserved. The resources will be given to you to go through this, uh, this terrible time of testing, which is to come upon the face of the earth or upon those who dwell upon the earth. Now, you already know which, uh, which position I take. It's no secret, I'm sure. But it seems to me that the latter position is the one that's most consistent with the rest of Scripture. The Greek construction of this phrase is difficult to, uh, difficult to understand. Uh, it's inconclusive. It can go either way. Either he's saying you go through it or you're taken out of it. But it seems to me that what he's saying is that the hour of testing which comes upon those who dwell upon the earth will not fall upon us in the sense that we will not feel the wrath of God. There are two classes of individuals in the book of Revelation. There are those who dwell upon the earth. That's those who are earthbound, those who are humanistic in their outlook, materialists, those who don't uh, have time or room in their life for God. They just uh, live for themselves. Those are described in Revelation as those who dwell upon the earth. Then there's another moral class that are called those who dwell in heaven. That's God's people, as Paul describes them in Ephesians, those who are seated with Christ in heavenly places. Uh, they're called the tabernacle of God, or those who dwell in heaven. Now, they don't really live in heaven, they live on earth, but their mind is set on things above. In other words, they have a spiritual perspective on things, they want God's will in their life, and therefore they dwell in heaven. Now the point is, those who dwell in heaven will be kept through this terrible time of testing in the sense that they are preserved from the judgment that falls upon those who dwell upon the earth. Now, the reason I think that's most consistent is because it's always the pattern throughout Scripture that God takes us through rather than out of trouble. There are never any promises that our lives will be uh, free from pain or struggle or suffering. God has not promised to make us healthy and wealthy, only wise. He will give us the resources to face whatever we have to face, but He does not promise to make life easy to deliver us from uh, physical suffering, or uh, to give us all the money we think we need, or all the creature comforts and pleasures that we look for in life. That's never a promise. But what he does promise is give us the resources to go through anything 
that, uh, that may come our way. Uh, let me read a section from Hebrews. You don't need to turn to it. But this is uh, the note of triumph that the book of Hebrews sounds. He describes the great heroes of faith, Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, and so forth, who conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. And we say, that's victory, that's triumph, that's the way we're supposed to live. But then he goes on to say, others were tortured, not accepting their release in order that they may have, might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins, in goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. And the author of Hebrews says that's, uh, that's triumphant. They lived triumphantly. They lost their lives in many cases, but they lived triumphantly. That's what God promises. That's what it means to walk by faith. Jesus, in uh, his conversation with the disciples on Mount Olivet, warns them that the time is coming when they're going to be uh, offered up and they'll stand before tribunals and they'll They'll be scourged, and they'll be imprisoned, and they'll be beaten. But he says, I'll give you opportunity to give witness to the truth. He says, don't worry about what you're going to say or how you're going to say it. I'll give you wisdom at, at that very moment. And uh, he says, your families will turn against you, and your, your husbands will hate you, and your wives and your children, and you'll die. But not a hair of your head will perish. That's the subtle irony, in, you see, in, in God's dealings with us. They may put us to death, but they can't really hurt us. Not one hair of your head will perish, though you may have to go through, through hard, rigorous times. But the point is, whatever we have to face, God will see us through. That's the promise. It's one of preservation as well as, as vindication. And then he says in verse 11, I am coming quickly. That's what's going to set everything right. When the Lord comes back, and uh, then he's going to straighten out this mess that we've made of things. That's not pie in the sky by and by. That's a, that's a promise from one who is truth. As Helmut Thielicke says, when I, when I see the Lord coming back, I'm going to say, I knew you meant it. And that's what we cling to. The time is coming when, uh, despite the hardship of this life, we're going to see the Lord, and he's going to put his arms around us, and he's going to say, you did well. I'm so proud of you. Well done. And that's, that's what we anticipate. And then in, in verses 12 and 13, as he has done in each of these letters, he delivers a promise to those who overcome. The overcomer in this case is the one who keeps the word, his word to endure. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it anymore. And I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God in my new name. Uh, these, again, are, are eschatological promises. That is, they have to do with, with the, with the far-off end times when the Lord comes back and he says, I'll make you a pillar in the house of my God and no one will take you out. 
this uh, city had been shaken uh, by an earthquake some uh, 50 to 70 years before John wrote this letter. So they knew what it was to have, a, have pillars come uh, crumbling down. But uh, he says, you won't be like that. You'll be stable. Now, this is a promise for the future. This is when the Lord comes back. This is what he will make us to become. But the great thing is that he is now in the process of making us what we're going to be. We're en route. We're in transit. We haven't arrived yet. But he is increasingly making us more stable, more secure, less easily moved. As Paul puts it, uh, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. That's what it means to be a pillar. Now, that's one of my constant prayers. Lord, I just I want to be a, a pillar, except I always envision a thousand-year-old oak planted on a mountainside somewhere with roots that go down 50 or 100 feet, and uh, the winds blow, and, uh, and it doesn't move. That's the kind of man I want to be, but I find I'm not there yet. I react, and I get defensive, and I get fearful, and I'm not stable. But he's changing me, and he's changing you, and we're increasingly being conformed to the idea of being a pillar. He who has begun a good work in you, Jesus says, will perfect it until the day of Christ. Or as Peter puts it, the God of all grace who called you by his eternal glory after you have suffered a while, will make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you. That's our hope. may not be there now, but that's our hope. And then he says, not only will you be a pillar, but I'm going to write uh, the name of God upon you. That's uh, our identification with God, and the name symbolizes his character. We'll have the character of God. And the name of the city will have the character of the inhabitants of the new Jerusalem and the name of Christ. The new name, he says, the little secret that you and I have between each other, the name that no one knows will be written upon the pillar. It's a symbol of the character, the Christ-like character that we'll have then. As John puts it, now we are the sons of God. But uh, it doesn't appear that we are. We don't look like sons of God. I don't look like a son of God. I don't act like a son of God sometimes but I am. And we know that when he shall appear, we'll be like him. That's the hope. And in the process, in the, in the, in the interim, God is working out that process in our life. Now, you see what he's saying in this troubled church, church under pressure, intimidated by the world around? First of all, their destiny is fixed. No one's going to take away from you, he says, what, what I've promised. Secondly, your continuity is, is assured. He's at work to cause us to endure, giving us the resources to go through anything. And while we're here and God is at work on us, the opportunities are unlimited. We need to seize them. We need to redeem the time because, as Paul says, the days are evil. Not short, just evil. And the more evil things become, the more opportunities there will be to walk through the doors that God has opened for us. Let's pray, shall we? Let's stand together <clears throat> as we pray. Father, we have to confess uh, that so often we are intimidated and fearful, and we forget what we have because of who you are. And uh, it is the intent of our heart to become more bold. Thank you that you're at work to, uh, to do that for us. 
Help us to have your perspective on those around us and to see their real need, to see beyond the facade that people uh, erect and the, the actions they take to keep us at arm's length and keep us from seeing what they're really like. Help us to see the desperate need that people have and to be willing to speak a word in season to those that are, that are weary. Thank you for your strength that makes it all possible. In Jesus' name, amen.